quiet on this up, please. This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Unsung Heroes, Stories to Inspire, here on Podcast Detroit, where our purpose is to share inspirational stories and unique narratives of individuals have, who have been sparked by their passion to become movers and change makers in our communities. And we hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. And I'm really excited for the show today. First of all, I want to welcome back uh, my co-host, Calvin Moore, who hey, we missed last week. I am back. I'm sorry. I had a sick kid at school and projectile okay. vomiting. And, oh, yeah. And oh, wow. They yeah. frown on that, or at least keeping your kid after that event has happened yeah. <laughs> in the vicinity of other children. So yeah, I don't know why. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, we've... Um, and then I think we took a break the week before, so I feel like it's been, yeah, it's a, been a while since we saw each other. While. So yeah. welcome back. Glad to be back. Um, and I'm super excited. Actually, we are recording episode 19, but we actually have an episode that we're waiting to drop. And so this is actually our 20th episode, technically speaking. I don't know how you've done that because I've been doing this for a year and I just hit 40 episodes. Wow. Well, that's like, but you've been doing this for, I mean, I would look at the time thing, time also. I guess. And it's a two-hour show. It's a two-hour show. two hours. But I do it every week. Well, we took a few breaks, but yeah. do it pretty much every week. Well, we're going to be taking a, few, a little br- bit of a break for the rest of the summer, I think. Okay. And that gives All people right. a chance to kind of catch up. But give yeah, me, but here we Fridays are. Give me my Fridays back. Give me my Fridays back. Yeah, I know. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Feeling good, too. But, um, but yeah, today, um, so this is episode 19, and um, actually the date is July 21st, 2017. And the reason I... Mention that is because this weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the Detroit riots of 1967, and there's kind of a lot that's happening um, locally um, to mark this milestone. And um, I like to refer to it as a rebellion. Yeah, I was going to say actually, that's a you know that's kind of a controversy too. <laughs> yeah. Like, do we call it the riots or rebellion? Um, but either way, it was like a you know kind of a big milestone in our city's history. And so I'm actually really excited to have Professor Sally Howell, uh, Howell I, want to say, I just want to say Howell, Howell Sally, Professor Sally Howell on today. Um, welcome, Dr. Thank Howell. you. It's great to be here. Um, and you are, um, so just a you know, brief introduction, um, 
Dr. Howell is a historian um, and an academic who's dedicated her life um, to looking at immigrant groups in the area, particularly Muslim Americans and Arab Americans. And she speaks on the Arab and Muslim communities uh, in Detroit and their history here. And she's a director of the Center for Arab American Studies and an associate professor of history at the University of Michigan in Dearborn. She received her PhD from the American Culture Program at the University of Michigan in 2009. And um, she's authored many articles and books on the experience of uh, this, uh, these groups. Her books include Citizenship in Crisis, Arab Detroit After 9-11, which was published in 2009, Arab Detroit 9-11, Life in the Terror Decade, and um, Old Islam in Detroit, Rediscovering the Muslim American Past, which is her newest book. That was published in 2014, and she's currently completing a book entitled Halal Metropolis, Mosques, Markets, and Neighborhood Development, which explores the uh, mutual uh, constitution of local public, publics and religious minorities across the urban and suburban landscape in Michigan. So we are so excited to have you, um, someone so knowledgeable and just uh, really interesting um, uh, special uh, specialty, I would say. Um, and I'm really excited for this conversation because, as you'll learn too, um, Calvin, um, he is very knowledgeable himself, and he's kind of he. I'm a historian, so I'm historian. geeking out. Yeah, right exactly. Now. Like, he's like what? when he found out you were going to be <laughs> another so history major. Yay! <laughs> um, and I'm a you know, although I'm a physician, I'm a psychiatrist, and you know, in the mental health field. Um, but I would say that I'm kind of a history buff too. I love history, and if I and actually before I decided, I don't know if a lot of people know this or remember this, but before I decided on medical school, I was actually really considering if I should go into academics and get a PhD in Islamic studies or history, or I loved all that stuff. And I'm kind of a transplant to Detroit. So I was just thinking about as I was driving down on 75, um, that I moved here in 2002 and was what, right when I moved, I was straight at Wayne state, um, applying to med school, then med school and all my medical training. I'm really indebted to the city of Detroit and the people of Detroit. Um, and I actually helped start mental health services at Hoda Clinic because I really wanted to give back. So so I think this is something that's near and dear to uh, um, many people's hearts. And I, as I was flipping through um, your book, which I actually have had for a few years, and so I was motivated to, I was like, I need to read this book. And you would kind of, I asked you which chapter would be good to, as an introduction. And I was reading this, I was like, gosh, I feel like Did she suggest an introduction? No, she didn't actually, <laughs> which I think is good because although I, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed when I start the over introduction and I have to start from the beginning to end, I'm kind of a OCD reader too. I'm like a stickler, right? You feel like, but actually, no, it was chapter two that I started with. And um, I just felt like everybody, if you're not going to read the whole book, I mean, at least I think get a glimpse of chapter two as um, I think everybody in in Michigan that has a love for Detroit should have this book on their bookshelf and really read it. It was really amazing and so many things that I just in the brief overview that I got. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the compliments. (laughs) So so you've really dedicated your life to studying the history of Detroit, as I mentioned, um, in terms of immigrant groups and particularly Muslim and Arab Americans. And, you know, as a product of immigrants and a Muslim myself, I find this fascinating. And I was really struck, like as I mentioned, by the richness of our history that I had no idea that really existed, um, you know, in my mind. And I think many people, we feel like, of, you know, we've got two main groups. We have our um, African-American Muslims, um, you know, Nation of Islam. But then in terms of immigration, I really think of it as like the act of 1965 and kind of this influx, of course, after that. Um, 
but and you know I'm sure we'll get into this. But I was just really struck by the richness of our history prior to that, even in the early early century in the 1920s and even before that. So, how did you become interested in this topic, and how did it become kind of your passion? Well, um, that's actually a difficult question. <laughs> I became interested in uh, I, I, my church sent me to the Middle East. I spent mm. a month in Palestine working in Nazareth on a work camp there, um, and this was when I was an undergraduate. And I felt, you know, I learned so much about the history of the area, about the history of the Palestinian people, about the Israeli-Palestinian struggle, and I had not really been aware of the political complexities of that situation until I was there on the ground. And that was the summer that Israel was invading Lebanon. So it was a very, very intense that 2006? time. No, it was, oh, before it, that. Was, it was oh, before 1982. That. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Long Chitilla. time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I felt, um, as many people do when they look into the issue a little more, I felt like the issue had been misrepresented in the media here, and I became interested. I also was staying with a Palestinian family, and I really uh, just felt this incredible kinship with them. I grew up in the American South, and I I had gone to high school in Connecticut. I'd lived out of the South for many years, but here I was. I felt like I was back in the South <laughs> wow. because they had they were they had you know a very they were garrulous people, and they had a real emphasis on hospitality and and cooking for people and you know being very generous to yeah, people but but, what's, but was there sweet tea on, on <laughs> there the was there was hot sweet tea okay, all, all right. day long okay. with mint in it yes they had a lot of hot tea no mint juleps okay but um but i just just found this affinity with the people and you know they were also hot tempered and um and there was also a sexual double standard which i had been raised with so i completely understood so this is a comparison that southerners and arabs neither one of them like it because both groups are kind right. of stigmatized. We're not like they don't that. want to be compared to each other. But, mm-hmm. but for me, I just thought, oh wow, I, I really felt at home there. Um, but uh, so then I majored in the Middle East, and when I graduated from college, I, I eventually I wound up working at Access in Dearborn, the Arab Community Center uh, for Economic and Social Services in Dearborn, and I was hired there to be their arts director. And when I first came to Michigan, that was when I first moved up here and to Dearborn very specifically, you would think that I would have thought, wow, you know, the way people talk about Dearborn nowadays, it sounds like such an exotic place with such a large Arab and Muslim community. But that isn't what got me. What got me was the Ford Rouge plant. Mm -hmm. It was all that history of the labor struggle that took place right in that neighborhood. And um, the, the way in which, you know, here are the people who were narrating the history of the Ford Motor Company, which to me was like the quintessential American story. I can consider the Rouge plant to be like the Ellis Island of the Midwest. You know, Mm. Uh, everybody had a family member who worked there, you know. Um, uh, But the fact that it was being narrated to me by Arab Americans, you know, that was also interesting. Uh, So, you know, this is really how my interest in the history of the community came up just by working in the neighborhood and um, seeing that there was a lot of really rich history um, with this population and history that had not really been put together very well. And then when I came back, you know, I worked at Access for a long time, moved away from Michigan, moved back to Michigan. And when I started thinking about a dissertation topic, um, it was, you know, 9-11 came and went. And I had planned to write something Arab American. 
but I realized that I knew a lot about the Arab community, but I knew less about the Muslim community. And when you're getting ready to start a dissertation, you know, a project that you're going to be married to for 10 years at least, you know, you want it to be something that's really exciting and new to you. Mm. And so that was I, that's that's basically why I started exploring the history of the Muslim community. And what I found was that uh, you know, even less had been written about the history of the Muslim community than the Arab community. And uh, so that, that's what that's what got me involved. I mean, just, you know, I, I knew that there was a deep history and I found little threads of sources. Like I knew that there was a mosque that was built in Highland Park in the early 1920s, but there was very little written about that institution. And I was very curious about what happened to it. Mm-hmm. And when you read the newspaper stories um, from the period, you could see that the community there was really diverse. Mm-hmm. There were people mm-hmm. from India. There were people from Turkey, both Kurds and Turks. There were Syrians. Um, There were um, Albanian Muslims here in Detroit. And very quickly, there were African and African-American Muslims in Detroit, too, right? So so all these people were worshiping together, were doing things together. And when I went out and talked to people in the Muslim community, one thing they complained about a lot, especially in that period in 2003, 2004, was the the sense that the, the Muslim community was very divided along these racial lines. Mm-hmm. So I was also curious about how that came to be given given how given the evidence that they were really working together in the past. Yeah, they moved into a city where it was <laughs> it was pretty much uh, government policy in, in a way and Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company of course did a lot to uh, to make sure the city is segregated is still very segregated to this day. But it's kind of interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about about the book Old Islam in Detroit because when I think about history not being not being able to find information on someone like my my area of focus in history was the african-american experience in the early american republic so mm-hmm. uh as you probably know it's very hard to find information on that because uh african-americans history during the antebellum south in that period uh, of time uh was erased you know our our heritage was erased we were we were stolen from one country brought to another sold mm-hmm. into slavery uh families split apart our names were adopted my my last name Moore comes from Thomas Moore who was a slave owner in Spartanburg South Carolina uh and he wanted to have sex with as many women as he could uh to have his seed spread across the United States and so all of the Moors in the United States are actually related oh wow um but uh a good deal of them are African American primarily because he owned our ancestors. And so going and looking for African-American stories generally are bound up in, as far as you're generally going to get our census data, sometimes there are diaries if you are allowed to read and write, that kind of deal. Um, but that was taken from us. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, when I'm thinking about you know, Arabs and Muslims in you know, the 1920s, 1930s in Detroit, uh, it's fascinating to me that you struggled to find information uh, on things because it wasn't like it was erased. They were, they, they were free and they could worship together. And it was, so, I mean, why, you yeah, know, tell us a little bit about the book, old Islam, you know, old Islam in Detroit and tell us about the struggle in, in finding information and, and why that is. Yeah. Well, it's actually connected to what you're talking about, right? So, so when you look at the history of the, the sort of the existing, the, 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 the history of the Muslim American community that existed prior to my book, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that you heard a lot was people would take the evidence, the very thin evidence that you're describing from the pre, you know, from the period of slavery, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the plantation roles and, you know, uh, to a certain extent, the the narratives that 
were recorded during the, the during the depression um, from former slaves and in, in exactly in those very few instances where there was a textual source from mm-hmm. those texts and from this very thin record, they were reconstructing Muslim communities in the South in this period of slavery when people weren't free to meet, they weren't free to congregate, they weren't free to worship as they chose. But people were for, were finding Islam in that early history, uh, even just looking at people's names and things like this. And there was such an intense effort to reconstruct a Muslim life for African Americans in that period. The, the, the literature has many books that focus on this. You know, one of my favorite books is Michael Gomez's book, Black Crescent, which is just this incredible uh, history of the the Muslim slaves who came not just to the United States, but to the Western Hemisphere as a whole and how they were treated by the different empires. It's just this incredible book. But when you go back and look, exactly as you're saying, in the early 20th century, why was there... Why was there no interest? Right. If you look at so many of the existing uh, books about um, about the history of the Muslim American community, they they say, oh well, you know, there were immigrants who came to America in this period. They were a small group. They were uneducated. Uh, they were mostly interested in getting ahead for their families, and they, did, they you know they didn't really have time to build mosques or institutions. They weren't really religious. Uh, they didn't know enough about their faith to do a good job of passing it on to their children. And if it hadn't been for the new immigration that started in the 1960s when our immigration laws were liberalized, especially toward toward the, toward Asia, toward the Muslim part of the world, um, then we would we would really have no Islam in America. Um, other than that, that was created here by the African-American community in the early 20th century. And for me, that just seems strange because, again, I was I was coming at this history from Dearborn <laughs> where there was a mosque that was built in the 1930s and there had been another mosque that was built in the 1930s in the same neighborhood that had become the Islamic Center of America, which was this mosque on Joy Road in Detroit, which was big and dynamic and vibrant and growing. Now it's one of the largest mosques in America. It's located on Ford Road right near the campus I teach on today. Uh, it's still called the Islamic Center of America but a huge, vibrant, growing congregation with roots all the way back, you know, to the turn of the last century. So so I was really curious about not just what was the history, but also this question of why the Muslim community itself wasn't celebrating this history, yeah. especially in the post-9-11 period when they were being described and thought of and represented as foreigners, as not really American, as hostile to America, as a threat to America. So it seemed to me that having... You know, this is a moment when you want to be able to say, no, we've been here for 100 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I found is that um, I think that it's hard for me to describe quickly, but I think the issue – there's a complexity to being Muslim in America. Muslims have always politically been somewhat outside the political mainstream, both the African-American Muslim community and those who have roots overseas – um, a lot of African Americans chose Islam because they were trying to um, reclaim uh, an African identity for themselves. But more than that, they were rejecting um, the Christian tradition, which they felt had been used to manipulate them into being, uh, you know, complicit in their own enslavement, and um, and just to reject you know, what America had done to them, reject their place in America, reject their racial identity in Mm -hmm. America. And so, um, so Islam offered them an alternative identity and an, you know, an alternative faith too. Right. Um, And you really see when you're talking about the Christianity being used um, against slaves or to make them complicit in their own slavery, you see that uh, portrayed very, very well in 
both the actual narrative and then the film that came out, Nat Turner, mm-hmm. uh, about the the uprising, uh, where Nat Turner went from you know farm to farm, you know farm to farm, killing all the slave owners. But he was a preacher, and his uh, his slave owner essentially farmed him out to different uh, plantation owners, and he would go and preach to the slaves in order to keep them more docile. Yeah. That was literally why they why they were hiring him, which is, I mean, wow. he eventually realized that and rose up and killed a bunch of people. Um, but just kind of mm-hmm. to your to your point there, that was definitely used uh, in a way to keep African-Americans. But I didn't know about the, well, I guess I kind of in a, in a roundabout way, but you're more of an expert on it, um, didn't really focus on the shift from, Christianity to Islam in order to reclaim. Oh, absolutely. And some of the first missionaries who were here in the U.S., one of the first things they did was, first off, so so I'm getting away from why I wrote the book, but I'll come back back to that. I'll come back to that. But but the... um, so if you if you one of the things that Islam offered in Detroit in the 1920s when that first mosque was built or before it when people were worshiping apart from the mosque or when they were having meetings um, at the you know the UNIA hall or you know other places where African Americans also lived and met um, or at their coffee houses one of the things that was explicitly mentioned in almost all of these contexts was look at us here worshiping together. Um, People from all over the world in mosques, you know, and there was a there was a missionary here named Mufti Muhammad Sadiq and uh, who came to Detroit in 1921. And he said he he said very specifically, you know, in, in Islam, the sultan does not pray at the front and the servants in the back. It's whoever comes in first prays in the front and whoever comes in last prays in the back. Uh, it's not there's not this racial hierarchy of how people are in worship. There's a universalism to Islam that you don't see in Christian churches. And boy, in Detroit, in the 1920s, this was certainly true. Churches were very segregated. Mm-hmm. Some Roman Catholic churches would have African American worship hours. Like you, you come, you come at three in the afternoon. Don't come at eleven in the morning with with everybody else. And a lot you of you have to understand as a black Pentecostal growing up, that would have been fantastic for me because we were in church from nine a.m. to six p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so three p.m. start would have been great. <laughs> I, I know that feeling. I know that. I'm not giving up on the civil rights. I'm going to go back in time and, and, and live in that period. Um, but I'm just saying that that's funny. I'm sure um, your services were more lively than they the ones at the Catholic were. Church. They too. absolutely were. But um but they were they were saying this there's this universalism here. Um so it wasn't just the the African identity that was being promoted, but to see themselves as part of this universal community, uh really people of color, right? So the there was a there was a spectrum of people from from Eastern Europe, you know, to India and Africans as well were a part of this community. So um it was it was just the most diverse kind of place you would find in the city at the time with people coming together and worshiping together. And in the later 1920s, they really got together along political lines. So you had political leaders like Duz Muhammad Ali, uh, who was a British subject but of Sudanese origin, um, who had written this, uh, this, this newspaper while he was in England before he came to the U.S. called the New Asia and Orient Review, um, which was trying to bring together the political concerns, the anti-colonial Brit- uh, uh, political concerns of South Asians and Africans in relation to European colonialism. And he saw Islam mm-hmm. as the bridge that would bring these people together, enable them to organize together. And when he came here to Detroit, he was invited here in 1924 by the Universal Islamic Society, which was the first mosque that actually opened in the city of Detroit. Uh, it opened in 1925 on Hastings Street, 
you know, interestingly, mm-hmm. just a few blocks away from where the Nation of Islam got started. And again, people, you know, if you if the, that's the picture that's on the cover of my book, um, a picture of this worship service. And the three leaders of the organization were Duz Ali, an African man, um, Shah al-Abedin, an Indian man, and Khalil Bazi, an Arab man, right? Wow. And they were very politically, they, they saw that they had a lot in common and were working together. And other people saw them that way, too. Um, so that's so so. Okay, so there's that's sort of bringing the African American narrative mm-hmm. in now for the immigrant community. Um, so I'm saying that there was this critique um, uh, in the literature about who the early immigrants were, and I think it had to do with the fact that there again. So the the Arabs or the South Asians who were here in the city, and this is also true of the Eastern Europeans who were here. Um, they also felt a political dissonance because this was just exactly the period when their homelands were either being colonized or being liberated. <laughs> so, uh, so let's be specific here for a second because you're getting into something that I, I think a lot of people conflate. Um, you have uh, been very clear about kind of differentiating between Arab and Muslim. And I think a lot of people, especially Americans, and I'll, I'll see this all the time in people who are like fear-mongering online and things like that, um, where it's almost like Americans look at Arabs and Muslims like they look at Koreans and Japanese people. Like I lived in Japan for four years. If you call a Japanese person Korean, they get very offended. And there's a reason why. I mean, they had a war. You know, they had a war against each other. Um, oh, they all look the same to me. And so there is this conflation, I think, in a lot of people's minds that Arab means Islamic. So why the differentiation for for people who don't know? You're differentiating between the two. Um, and you're saying in South Asia. I mean, explain for people a little bit of the, the geography there. Okay. Well, so the the Arab community, the Arab world is really large, yeah. diverse. <laughs> See, I know this, but I want Many, you to explain. Uh, Twenty three right? countries or something, depending on how you count the number of countries. But of course, stretching across North Africa um, and the eastern part of the Mediterranean, um, and then um, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and there are just many, many different types of people, many different ways of life that are reflected in that region of the world. Um, it is a region that is majority Muslim, overwhelmingly Muslim. Okay. But the early immigrant community that came here to America was overwhelmingly Christian. Okay. They were mostly Christians who came here from – at the time they were referred to as Syrians. They came from an area that could include Syria, today's Syria, today's Lebanon, and today's Palestine. Okay. Mostly. Well, Assyrian, right? A-S. No, Assyrian oh, means something Assyrian. different. Oh, no, okay, it's just different. in terms of – in legal terms – well, they came here before there was a division between right. Syria and, and, and Lebanon. And the federal government referred to them as Syrians because okay. they were coming from the Ottoman province of Syria. Okay. And um, um, yeah, so – but the majority of people who came were Christians. The Christians tended to live in the coastal region of Lebanon in particular. And there had been American missionaries there and uh, French missionaries there, you know, really since the 1850s um, who were uh, creating schools, teaching people French and English, uh, sort of exhibiting Western culture to them. The Lebanese economy was, especially in Mount Lebanon, where a lot of the missionary work was and where a lot of the Christian communities were located, there was a a heavy um, industry. They grew mulberry trees or mulberry bushes, which which were where silkworms live. And so uh, this part of the world was really intensely – it was the leading producer of silk. That was used in the Western world, and so there was this there was this economic tie. The missionaries brought the silk industry, you know, and there was this 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 overlapping between ethnic identity, religious identity, and labor and economic identity mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, the the silk industry collapsed. Um, 
Uh, with but it came back strong in the 80s. Just, <laughs> just to be honest, everything was silk in the 80s. But go on. It's a joke. <laughs> no. And no, the, they had, there, there were all sorts of problems in Lebanon in this period. War, famine, silk industry collapsed. And this led to, so a lot of the Christians already had ties with Westerners because of the missionary, mm-hmm. their experience. And so they came here first, really. And they started coming in large numbers in the 1880s, 1890s. By the early 1900s, um, their prosperity, you know, they were bringing, you know, going home again and building new houses in Lebanon and things like this. And so the Muslims started thinking, wow, we might want to get in on this this bandwagon too. But still, historically, in the Detroit area in particular, um, the Christians were historically the majority here uh, in the Arab community. Okay. So you have you have Christians from Lebanon and Syria. You also have a large Iraqi Chaldean community, and they're what you would call Assyrians, right? Oh, they're right. from a they're from right. a they're not from a group that was um, that was. Um, Islamized, right? Um, they they're sort of were a separate group that predate the rise of Islam in the region. Um, uh, the Chaldeans and the you know they spoke Aramaic, and there there are several Syriac communities there that are that ha- share this identity in common, mostly in Mesopotamia and Iraq and Syria, Turkey and that area. Um, but anyway, so we have large populations from Egypt, from Iraq, from uh, Palestine, from Jordan, from Yemen, and from Lebanon. Those are the big groups that are here in Detroit. And today, because the dynamics have really changed since 1965 when the immigration laws changed, um, in the 20s, the American immigration laws, or before the 20s, um, they favored – the only way you could become a citizen of the United States is if you were considered to be a free white person. Um, and Asians were very specifically excluded from that definition. So the question was, you know, where are – where do these Syrians fit in? Are they Asians or are they – are they Europeans? Can we consider them white? And there were a number of um, legal cases in the 1920s where Syrians were denied the right to naturalize, and then they petitioned the government and argued against their case. And eventually the, the federal government ruled that they were white. Wow. So cool. once, once the federal government ruled that they were white, then they were qualified for citizenship. How do I get that ruling? <laughs> uh... Well, Africans were given citizenship after, yeah. after the Civil I'm War. I'm just saying, so. how do I get the ruling that I could be white? There's a lot of privileges that come with that. Hey, uh-huh. there, there's, there's, a Sudanese, there's a Sudanese man in Detroit. He used to work for the Detroit Public Schools who was from Sudan, you know, really, really dark-skinned yep. man. Um, there. And uh, he was considered white legally because he was Egyptian. I think he had Egyptian nationality. And so he was he was an Arab and he was considered white, even though he was as black as you can be. And he actually sued the federal government to be declared white because he felt he was being discriminated against in the Detroit public schools. They weren't promoting him. And uh, and so he lost his case. I'm sure he did. <laughs> hey, boy. No, but anyway. No, he wanted to yeah. be black, not white. He oh, was suing to be okay. black. Oh, okay. He gotcha. was a black man suing to be declared black. Oh, okay. wow. Interesting. Uh, sorry, I didn't make I, that clear from the beginning. Just check the box. Black. No one's going to question. <laughs> no, in the schools, they they didn't accept it. They're like, you're an Arab. You're that wow. means you're white. Oh, interesting. Okay. All and I right. think I actually teach a class um, for psychiatry residents. It's an, a transcultural psychiatry course, and I do one actually on Arab American acculturation. And and that's interesting because. Um, oh, and then I also talk about Muslim Americans, and it's like it's really hard to get the data and the facts because exactly when people were coming, they weren't categorized no, by yeah, their religion. They, it was always by racial lines. Exactly. But I appreciate your question, Calvin, because I actually feel it also as uh, of in, being of Indian and Pakistani descent that um, I remember actually in high school there was a friend of mine, and she was 
I mean, I considered her to be somewhat intelligent, but when she asked me this question, I was like, what? She was like, wait, Saba, you're Indian? I thought you were Muslim. <laughs> and I was like, what? I don't even know where to start with this. But it is. I think that people kind of um, maybe it just really want to cat. And she was Indian herself, which I thought was even funnier. Um well, in the but, early period, in the 1920s, if you look at the newspaper stories, they talk about who was in the in the crowd at the mosque, and they always refer to the Indians as Hindus. So they talk did, about the Hindus who the were yeah, – that was just the word that was used for Indian at the time. Wow. So but, I just want to read a little bit from your um, – let's see, what was it? Um, one quote that I found really powerful, um, just very short. To what extent did Muslims in Detroit worship, organize po- politically, study, and raise their children across the racial divide that marked European, Turkish, and Syrian Muslims as white, but South Asian and African-American Muslims as something else? Collaborations of this kind were very much the norm for those who placed their Muslim identity above or on par with their ethnicity for those who rejected American racial categories and embraced Islamic identities instead and for the anti-colonial activists who recognized the pivotal role Western racial and religious constructs played in rationalizing the colonial project. The sense of mutual obligation and camaraderie they found in Islam transcended the enormity of daily life in a society that constantly sorted people into the categories of not white, not citizen, and not immigrant. So I think that really kind of ties that together and i think that it's amazing because um you're right i mean just it really speak it really uh is so important for one's sense of self to have this knowledge of history to acknowledge that there is this richness you kind of touched on this too but i mean actually even in the um i mean i think we're getting better but in the american muslim community now we still are very we can be tend to be very ethnically um divided um and it's we do have some mosques that are a little bit more um, heterogeneous, but we still tend to be, you know, kind of tend to go back into our own kind of groups. And so to know that there was this history where we celebrated that diversity and that was a strong point is really amazing. Well, let me go back now to, to still to the initial question of the 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 what what got me going on the book yeah. it was just this question. So we've established that the community was diverse and that people had political things in common and in both in terms of their interests with colonialism and with their homelands and also in terms of their racial positioning here in the United States. But so so this tells you that there was a little bit of ambiguity that the Muslim community might have felt about being here in America um, uh, or creating a sense of of community here. But the thing that made the history, I think, to go back to ask your question about where was the history, right? I think that when people started arriving in America in the 1960s, they looked at the existing Muslim community that was here, and they they saw them as being American. <laughs> they were like, Interesting. you know, I'm going to this. I, I, I'll just give you a, an anecdote from my own life. Recently, I was in Hamtramck, and uh, it was a Friday morning. And I was sitting in this house I was renting. Actually, it was like the middle of the day, and I was supposed to meet this imam at Masjid al uh, al Islah um, at just right after the prayer. So I was sitting there, and I, you know, I waited. I knew what time the prayer was, and I knew what time the prayer would be over. So I look at my watch and say, "Okay, it's time to go." So I leave the house, and I tried to turn right on Kniff, mm-hmm. and I couldn't turn right on Kniff because there was just a traffic jam happening because all the people were leaving Masjid al Nur, which was just sort of further east than me 
Um, and uh, so there was all these cars coming out of Master de Noor, all these pedestrians leaving Master de Noor. So I couldn't, I couldn't turn right. So I had to wait for this traffic to clear up. So then I turn right and I go, and there are more cars coming in because uh, Beit al Mukarram had let out, <laughs> and all the, you know, there's, there's all this. I refer to it as the Juma Jam. The Juma is, is, <laughs> is Friday. It's the day of the prayer. So it's like the Juma traffic jam that you have in Hamtramck. But then I drove by the Albanian mosque. And all these men were coming out of the Albanian mosque, and they were all white men. And I really did a double take. I was like, wait a minute. It's a mosque. You know, where are the brown people coming out of the mosque? You know, anyway, so it just lets you know that we all see, We even someone like me who works in the community all the time, you know, we have this image in our head of what Muslims are and what they look like, right? Mm, and Muslims yep. do too. Yep, and too. when the immigrants came in the 60s or there were other immigrants who came before them in the 50s or the 40s and they looked at the American mosques that that early generation of people did did establish here in Detroit – um, they 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 were like, wait a minute, these guys are American. It, it didn't matter if they were Arab American or Turkish American or South Asian American or African American. To the immigrants who were coming, they looked American. And the mosques that they were worshiping in weren't like the mosques back in Egypt or Lebanon or Palestine or Sudan. Right, they were these American religious institutions where uh, men and women mixed freely, um, where uh, there was as much of an emphasis on the social life of the community as there was on religious education. Um, and they said, "Oh, these aren't really mosques. Look at them; They're, they look more like churches." The people call their imams preacher, <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, and they seemed more like ethnic clubs to them. So there was a critique of the existing Muslim American praxis that the immigrant community felt. And the same thing happened in the African American community, um, especially when Imam Worth Dean died. Mm. He took over from his father, Elijah uh, Muhammad, who had um, who had been the the one of the founders and the certainly the leader of the nation of Islam for a whole generation and then when he died his son took over and his son was educated in Saudi Arabia and, and read and and spoke Arabic and was was you know basically brought that community away from the teachings of his father away from the teachings of the nation and toward mainstream Islam right and so there was sort of like a mass conversion in the in the nation community from what the nation had been teaching and practicing um, to mainstream Sunni Islam. And so, so that community also, you know, like it, all these people were sort of judging one another in that period. And there was a lot of just trying to override that past, right? The, you know, so, so the new people who came and the new believers who were already here, they worked together to try and create a more, um, a more text-based Islam, a more visible Islam, a more distinctive kind of religious tradition here in the United States. And, and part of that project was actually just uh, critiquing the, the, what they had encountered here prior to their new, new Islamic identity that they were trying to promote. And, you know, a lot of this is – some of it is in hindsight. I have all, pictures all through the book and I show pictures in my classes and my lectures of Muslim American gatherings um, in the 40s and the 30s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, and there are no hijabs in those pictures or very rarely do you see hijab unless it's in a worship service. And some people are sort of shocked to see the women's auxiliary of a mosque, you know, sitting out in the sun with 
with their 1950s era dresses on and, you know, no head coverings. And they're like, oh, you know, that's not Muslim. Well, if you had looked at a similar picture of women in Lebanon from mm-hmm. that period or women in, you know, in Pakistan in that period or women in Egypt in that period, they wouldn't have been covered either, middle class women, you know. So so the hijab is actually, we're also ahistorical when we look at our past and think that oh, we absolutely. expect to see the hijab everywhere. But so that was what really got me interested in the project. It wasn't just, you know, where is the history? It was also what happened to the history? Why why is the history why has the history sort of been overlooked or overwritten because it's a it's a history people are painful with um, um, so so that was part of my project too was to just try and find in that past um, uh, well you know i mean i I'd looked for the past and then I found that there were a lot more parallels with the present than I think people had had understood or imagined. Um, and I even argue in the conclusion of the book, I mean, I, I take the book up to 1980. I ended in 1980 because after 1980, there are so many mosques. It becomes, I mean, I sort of, tra- I was tracing Muslim institutions really specifically in the book. It, it becomes almost impossible to do that. But, um, but I talk about how the same people who came in the 50s or the 70s and were critical of the existing Muslim institutions in the city, how they, um, if you you look at the mosques that they built they actually resemble the ones that they were initially critiquing right they have mm-hmm. big gyms right alongside their prayer halls they right. have industrial kitchens or you know commercial kitchens for all the social events that take place in the mosque they sponsor summer camps and yoga mm-hmm. classes and chess clubs and all the things you know because again you, you, religion in america because it's not state-sanctioned, it's not state-sponsored, um, religious communities have to compete with each other for attention, for audience, for dollars, for worshipers. And you have to make a mosque um, a vibrant, welcoming place yeah. if you want there to be a next generation. With each other and, and in a way uh, with with the culture at large. Uh, again, I'm from a Christian background. I remember working in youth ministry and I was like, I'm competing with MTV. Like these kids mm. want to watch MTV 24 <laughs> um, back, back when MTV was something that kids watch. I don't know what they watch now, but, uh, but <laughs> that was YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I was like, I know, I realized that you were, you were leaving in order to come to this youth group for two hours mm. a, a week. You were leaving multi-million dollar ad campaigns, <laughs> psychologists who have been hired uh, by marketing teams to figure out how do we best market to them. Uh, so competing with that and then also competing with the state level stuff, with your state level community centers, with your, uh, with your you know, quote unquote, I hate to use the word secular, but your, your regular old yoga studio. OK, mm-hmm. so you got your mosque that's going to offer it. You got, you know, the yoga studio that's going to you know, do it in your neighborhood as well. So I think when people are leaving any kind of uh, any any kind of regular society to enter into a religious or cultural center. A lot of them are called that now. Cultural center, yeah. conference centers. My church is huge. Mm-hmm. Massive church called Woodside out in, uh, out in Troy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Built as a conference center to train other churches to be on mission. All this kind of language. But, but it's built with the community kitchen, with two gyms, with a soccer field out back because they need to have something to compete with. 
Yeah, and sure. with other so churches, yeah, with not other just churches. with not just yeah. with the secular world, but with other churches. And so it's kind and of interesting with us, to see the, the same parallels there, yeah. because I think a lot of Christians, especially, are like, "Oh my God, Muslims are all terrible people," and they don't realize how much. I mean, we're mm. doing the exact same things, honestly. Like everybody needs community. Everybody wants community. Uh, and everybody kind of has felt needs, especially for for their family. And yeah, there are churches that have you know coffee and donuts mm-hmm. Sunday morning, yep. and they have gift mm-hmm. shops. And the mosques are moving in this direction yep. too. There are many mm-hmm. mosques that have gift shops now, and a lot of places have like a breakfast, um, especially on the weekends. They want mm-hmm. to attract people, Cafes. right? Like Very attractive. Yeah. There's a there's an imam who was Imam Shiri, who's the founder of the Islamic Center of America, who um, who who built the mosque in the 19 early 1960s. A um, lot of interesting stuff about what he went through to try and build that mosque. But um, uh, in the 70s, um, some religious clergy started coming um, from Iran and other places who were he was a he was a Shia imam um, and they were a lot more, you know, conservative and rule bound than he was. And they looked at the congregation and they said to him, you know, why are all these women coming to your mosque without their head, heads covered? And he said, you know, look, we have a sign by the door that asks, you know, the we make hijabs available to people. We ask people to cover if they want to, but we're not going to impose this rule on the women of our congregation. And then he said exactly what you said. He said, these girls, they come here from places like, you know, Sterling Heights. They drive past movie theaters. They drive past uh, roller rinks. They, you know, he just listed all the inter- mm-hmm. hamburger. They drive past all these places and they come here. Do you think that I'm going to, you know, try and yeah. dictate the, to them anything mm-hmm. about how they should behave or comport themselves while they're here? I'm happy to have them here. Right. I know what it's like to get them from there to here. That's wow. that's the struggle I've been fighting. Now, if you want to in the next generation take that struggle to another level, go right ahead. But I'm just just playing this game. Right. That you know. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Well, as a Muslim American, as someone that goes to the mosque and um, have been involved, it's interesting because you kind of see some of this. Um, repeating itself too because now we have you know and that's a unique thing I think about um, well immigrants and then Islam is that you have newer Muslims that are coming like newer immigrants that come and then same thing there's kind of a critique of what's kind of already there Mm -hmm. for example we would be you know organizing events and there was always this um, like I was on this community affairs committee at our mosque for for a few years, and there was always this big debate on okay, do we need do we want to have do we want to have the partition up for this event? And the one you know those of us that were brought born and brought up here were like, no, it's like it's it's kind of unwelcoming, and the women don't like it. We don't like to have a partition, and you know we're in a mosque, we're behaving modestly, and we're like not you know, it's not a nightclub. And but I mean, there was still something to be said with the people that kind of did want it. They wanted to maintain kind of a you know, the sanctity or, you know, whatever purity too. So there was that to be said too, but it was so interesting because every event, this kind of debate kept coming up and over again. And yeah, I've been, I've watched it, your, your mosque too, because there is that partition in the lecture hall. You're talking about in the lecture mm-hmm. hall and, and, you know, I've kind of seen, moves back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Forth. It moves back and forth. You kind of see it coming up more to the middle and then moving back. And I've, I've always been intrigued by that. Other people that's, tell me this. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> other people, topic. other people tell me this story too. There was one woman who was talking about Masjid of Falah, which is in like right outside Hamtramck. And, and, um, I was just talking to her on the phone and, and she was telling me, oh, you know, when I first went there, it was just one room and everybody worshiped in the same room. 
And then she said they put up like a partition between the front and the back of the room and the women were supposed to worship behind the partition. Uh, just like a little curtain sort of thing. And then, you know, new people came and they were a little bit more conservative from the old country. And they said, you know, we really don't, we would rather worship in a separate room. So they built a room behind the mosque with a glass wall, which was where the women were supposed to stay. And she said she didn't like it because it was a small room. It was cramped. It was noisy. There were always like kids, kids in it and you couldn't concentrate. And just she felt separate. She didn't mm-hmm. want to feel separate. But then new people came from overseas and they didn't like it because the men and women could see each other. So they oh put God. a curtain over the thing. <laughs> and she said at that point, I left and went and found another mosque. Huh. Right. So there is. So, yeah. In some places, the conservative voices are the ones that, you know, they 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 manage to impose their way of thinking and doing things. And then in other places, there's a real insistence. You no, know, this is the way we've done it. This is our tradition. This is the, here are the religious legitimate reasons for why we think we can do it this way. And the prophet's mosque, there was no wall, mm-hmm. you know, in the prophet's mosque, there was no, you know, women sitting in the basement or sitting in a balcony. And we're going to we're going to worship like they did in the prophet's time. So you just see these these there, the, you know, Islam is like Christianity. It get, every single person interprets it in a different way, mm-hmm. and 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 it's a matter of debate and contest and and you know struggle. Yeah, I'm reading an article right now um, in a magazine called Relevant. It's it's specifically Christian, but it's like faith, life, progressive culture, whatever their tagline is. They are always changing it up to not seem as Christian as they are. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is you know, will millennials and. I, I can't remember what generation they said. I can't remember the exact title uh, of the article. But it's really about kind of the struggle within the Christian church, which everything you're saying right now mirrors exactly I, what I this know, article I is know, saying. I you know, know the, the millennials and the generation before them, will they ever see eye to eye? Because you've got two con- – not just – I mean you hold the same faith but at the, and you hold the same worldview to a degree. But uh, you have modernism and postmodernism clashing with each other. And and we haven't had on this show yet Dr. Saeed Khan. He's been on uh, mm-hmm. on my program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he talked about, and, and this is kind of coming out in some of the things that you're saying, and the things that uh, the mosques are having to adapt to to, to bring people in because they know what they're competing against. Um, you know, Saeed Khan has, has told me personally, you know, uh, Islam has had a hard time um, responding to post-modernity. And so this is kind of that that space where it finds itself now. And I I just assume that he's right because he's an expert. I'm sure there are different opinions on that. Um, But it's just kind of this interesting thing. Regardless, there is this generational difference. And I think every generation does it, but not every generation is on the cusp of changing from an entire way of seeing the world. You might have two, you know, your grandparents and your, and your, you know, your grandkids both grew up modern. They're going to have their differences, but it's very different to have your grandparents who grew up modern and your grandkids who grew up postmodern. But I think just actually looking back at history, though, is kind of an example. I mean, I guess what is postmodern, what's modern? I know definitions. But like what I got from this book in our conversation, and it's so fascinating, we look back to the 1920s and it's like they seem they're more far ahead of where we are now with our mosque communities being sometimes so 
split uh, racial and ethnic lines. That's interesting. It's like that's kind of like almost like an ideal. But maybe the community was smaller. It was easier to do it then. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's exactly it. So, so um, of course, if you have, you know, I think in one of the stories, they say there were 10,000 people here, Muslims here in Detroit at the time, and like in 1914 or something like that. It's unlikely that there were 10,000 people. Newspaper estimates of populations and this, you know, if someone says people tend to inflate their numbers, mm-hmm. but you had a small community um, it existed mostly in that period in Highland Park. There was a there was a, a settlement sort of on the near uh, west side of Detroit, really where Black Bottom became. That that was before before the twenties and the thirties, before the Great Migration really brought so many people up here. That was a multi ethnic na- neighborhood, and there were a lot of Muslims mm-hmm. who lived in that neighborhood, especially the people who didn't have families. There were a lot of boarding houses, and and a lot of coffee shops and things like that. So that was an immigrant uh, neighborhood at the time for like recently arriving immigrants, You're not not the older communities, not the Poles and the Italians and the older groups who had been here longer. Um, but um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so and also there was so there there were fewer people. They lived in more concentrated areas and they lived in those areas together. Once people started spreading out in Detroit, they did. It was like the Arabs went to Dearborn, the the Turks went to Dearborn. They both of those groups moved to Dearborn with Ford. Um, that you know they basically built their houses in that neighborhood right as right as the Rouge plant was being constructed. They worked on the the, the construction of the factory and then they worked in the factory. Um, and uh, there was a very small Asian community here at the time because Asians were excluded by our racial ex- exclusion laws. Um, but there were some Bangladeshis in particular. There was interestingly, Ford actually was planning to build a factory in India, and so he recruited Indian. Uh, workers to come here. Uh, he wanted them to be sort of the the management team of his factory. So he brought them here and taught them, you know, how factories work and you know how to be a foreman and all this stuff. And then he never completed. Uh, he never built a factory in India. But so there were some Indians who had come in that period, and there were some Bangladeshis who had worked for the British Merchant Marine and who jumped ship and uh, wound their way to Detroit because there were jobs in Detroit. So, but the, Henry Ford was paying five dollars a day, which is ridiculous. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Time. Um, but, you know, so but there weren't enough of them and they didn't they didn't mm. they weren't free they, because they didn't have citizenship. They couldn't come and go freely. So they weren't able to bring women here and have Indian families here. Mm. Right. So most of the Bangladeshis married into the African-American community. And there were a few Indians, some of whom married black women and some of whom married white women. It just depended on which part of the community they hung out in. But that's still it was just so few people. They knew each other, but they 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 weren't a community in the sense of a big ethnic community community like we think of today, like the Indian community is today here in Detroit. Um, so, um, so people had to work together, right? If you were yeah. going to be a Muslim community, you had to work together. But I also think that the Muslim community is a little hard on itself when it talks about this, this, the fact that the reality of having ethnic mosques today um, your your mosque is really important. Um, it's not just a place of worship. It's also a place of, of you know, it's like the one place where you can really invest in your ethnicity here in America. Um, churches have always been this way too. New immigrants always built, you know, the Germans built German language churches and the, the Danes built Danish language churches and the Italians built Italian language churches. There was a huge conflict in the Roman Catholic Church because, you know, the church historically was run by the Irish and all these other new immigrant groups wanted services in their languages. I mean, look at the history of Hamtramck. It was a, a, you know, Poles invested in Hamtramck because they were trying to get away from the, the German hegemony of the city and the Irish hegemony in the Catholic Church here, you know. So, 
um, so it's it's like a part of the maturation of the community that it has so many different mosques and they're you know they're defined along ethnic lines or along sectarian lines. You know, people don't all worship in the same way, and they don't all eat the same food on the holidays, and they don't all have that same language that they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, yes, everyone needs Arabic in order to pray, but people also want their kids to know the, all the other languages that they bring with them. So to me, it's not a problem that there's so many ethnic mosques, especially because there are also mosques that aren't so ethnically divided. There are those mosques mm-hmm. for people who want that. You go or you just pray where you work. You know, you don't necessarily always drive to Rochester Hills to pray on Friday. If you're in this area, you're going to pray at a mosque near here. Um, but the other thing is, is, is there is an infrastructure of the Muslim community in Detroit. There are all these institutions that are not mosques. Um, there's the Michigan Muslim Community Council. There's the Council of American Islamic Relations. There's Muslim Family Services. There are all these institutions and organizations that exist outside the mosque where people are working. They're collaborating together. They're working very explicitly together. There are other institutions like the Hoda Clinic, uh, Dream of Detroit. All these are projects that bring people across the Muslim together um, to to work to to invest in the city of Detroit or to support – Muslim families or to support other local families, you know. So I, I think that I think that um, that that critique that the Muslim community has is, oh, we're one ummah. Why do we have so many mosques? You know, I, 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 I'm not a Muslim, so it's not up to me to say this. But for me, it's like, be happy that you have so many mosques because mm-hmm. this is all these people who are, who are investing in the same thing that you're investing in and trying to, you know, trying to build a new generation of Muslim Americans who Perhaps for them, ethnicity won't matter so much, right? But we're just not quite there yet. Well, well, let's let's talk about ethnicity mattering for a minute here, because we are on the uh, on the fortieth anniversary of the riots of nineteen fifty. 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 I said fortieth, didn't I? I said sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a fortieth birthday party. I'm going in a few days. I'm going to in a few days. So fiftieth anniversary. I do think I know that as a as a Detroit historian specifically. Um, so so this weekend marks the. The, the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Detroit riots or rebellion, however you look at it. Uh, for our listeners who are not aware or who are not from Detroit, can you tell us the significance of this event and whether you call it riots or rebellion? And then also comment on this idea of uh, – it's generally spoken of in, in, black, you know, in terms of black and white, racially. Um, cops harassing black people, city burns for five days, you know, Mitt Romney's dad, National Guard. People kind of know the contours. I think they were waiting for Catherine Bigelow's movie to come out to learn the history. Um, mm-hmm. But and per, perhaps it's a historical and ethical standpoint that honors the past because it's primarily uh, spoken of in those. Um, but since we've been a melting pot of cultures for years, uh, when a city burns, it, it, it affects all the inhabitants, everybody. Everybody has a story. If they were here, I remember this. Mm-hmm. I, did a, I, did a, I own a, a tour – a tour company of Detroit. I mm-hmm. do tours, historical tours of Detroit. And I remember taking uh, some Jewish people on that tour, and they talked all about the effects of the Detroit riots on the Jewish population and moving up the lodge after 1967 and things like that. Um, what was the perspective of the Muslim American community present at the time of the riots? So talk about the riots, and then what was the perspective of the, of the Muslim American community at that, at that time? Okay, so, um, yeah, so I refer... 
I, I use the term rebellion, not the term riot. I think it was, to be fair, I think it was a little bit of both. <laughs> um, um, but I don't think that it was, you know, I don't call it a race riot. Um, okay. Because so many of the people who were rioting, who were out in the street, throwing things, looting the stores, all the sort of classic riot behavior, they were a mixed crowd. It wasn't just the black community that was rioting. Um, and now the majority of the people who were killed, or I think 42 people were killed um, overwhelmingly by the police. Um, there were uh, over 1,100 people who were injured overwhelmingly, African-Americans who were injured, again, overwhelmingly by the police. Um, 2,000 businesses were burned down. Um, uh, those were owned by a whole variety of people. Um, black businesses were destroyed just like white businesses. Arab businesses were destroyed. Uh, in some cases, people's businesses were protected. You know, it just depends on where mm-hmm. you were located. Um, so it's to me, it's, it's it, I mean, I understand it is. You, you laid it out very well. The police at the time were... Um, it was an overwhelmingly white police force. Kavanaugh had been elected into office. He was considered to be a racially progress- progressive mayor at the time who was going to bring, you know, who's going to integrate the police, who was going to, you know, do a better job of protecting the city schools, um, who was going to do a better job of um, um, trying to bring equality to housing. I mean, these are the big issues for Detroit. Um, it was education, housing, jobs. Those and then police, police brutality. Those were the four issues um, that were really important to people um, in the community. And there was incredible segregation in the city. You had had this this very vibrant, um, but very crowded, overcrowded, um, um, uh, structurally insufficient neighborhood called Black Bottom that had been the primary housing neighborhood for for blacks that had been destroyed just in the period before this in the name of urban renewal so that the highways could be brought in and Lafayette Park and things like that. And and uh, but there was not really enough attention given to where all the people who were displaced by that would would be housed. Mm-hmm. And as blacks started moving into other neighborhoods, whites fled um, uh, in fear of their property values and fear because of the whole racial legacy of the city and the way the federal government sort of propped up um, um, white homeowners and. Uh, basically, red line. Red line, yeah, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it made things challenging for blacks. But so, so, the, but the real issue that summer—it was a hot summer. There were uprisings happening all over the country that summer, and the police brutality had gotten out of hand. There were several cases of uh, one uh, uh, prostitute was killed, and people really thought that that was just a summary shooting of this woman. And there was just a lot of uh, challenge between the black community and the law enforcement community in that period. And then there was this party at a blind pig celebrating someone returning from the Vietnam War. And a blind pig, for those of you who don't know, is just a bar that doesn't have a liquor license. Uh, it's a blind pig because the most, for the most part, the cops looked the other way. They were sort of, they pretended to be blind to it. But every now and then they would raid these blind pigs and arrest people. But usually they arrested the owners, the proprietors, the troublemakers, the really drunk people who were causing a disturbance. In this case, they went in and they tried to arrest every single person there. Well, the neighbors came out looked at this, basically said, no, we're not taking this anymore. Somebody threw a bottle. Next thing you know, you had sort of a, a, a riot on your hands. Um, but the reason I refer to the larger instance as a, as a rebellion is because people were frustrated, right? This, this had been a generation of people who had been listening to, you know, that life is going to get better. We're doing this. We're urban renewal. We're going to bring you housing. Uh, we're going to integrate. The, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to. 
but society was incredibly segregated. And these were not people who were raised in the South with the mentality of, I got to keep my head down. I got to keep my head down. These were people who were raised up here and had the idea, I, I want mine. <laughs> right. I want equality. And and so I think that the, the, the intensity of the uprising was, was a product of that frustration. It was a way, it was like the only way the black community had in that period to really give a voice to its frustration. Um, and the consequence of this was, I mean, yes, they went on for five days. Um, you know, the National Guard was called in, you know, state troopers were called in. The all, you know, it was a big um, devastating. It was the largest of the riots that t- took place in nationally that summer. Um, and it was devastating for the city. Um, and it was devastating for the people who lost their businesses and the people who lost their jobs. And there had been white flight from the city before 1967. People were moving out, you know. 10,000 yeah, beginning in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. 10,000 people a year maybe in that in that you know 8 to 10 but after you know it was like 60 70,000 people moved out in 1968 80,000 moved out in 1969. I mean my numbers are not exactly right but much larger number of people started leaving mm-hmm. and then you know industry started moving out. Some of those neighborhoods that were burned you can drive around the city today and see that they have never been rebuilt. Right. Northwest Detroit's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's it's, it's, so it's it's still we're still living with the legacy of this. Now the rebellion did succeed and bring you know the police were integrated, the fire department was integrated, the city government was much more integrated. You know the institutions of society have been more integrated, um, but the, the 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 cost of that was just this this incredible investment in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it wasn't just the, after sixty seven. The big three were building their factories. I mean Henry Ford built the Dearborn Rouge plant in Dearborn in nineteen. When he, you know, started building it in the 19-teens. He built his made his first factory was built in Highland Park, not in the city of Detroit. In Highland Park, the Dodge brothers built their factory in Ham, on the border of Hamtramck in Detroit because they didn't want to pay city taxes. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to deal with city people telling them where to put their railroad lines. They right? Use that uh, Home Rule Act of 1909 in order to incorporate both those cities too. Look it up; it's still in the books. Kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so they wanted freedom and autonomy from the city, and they built their factories in the suburbs. And workers started going out to the suburbs. Uh, black workers were still limited in their ability to buy in the, in the suburbs by redlining and all all that stuff. I mean, where where maybe not where your mosque is, but there are still mosques that are coming in where they, Bloomfield Hills used to have on the books that you couldn't have a Jewish, you know, like Jews couldn't buy land hmm. there, and they they tried to use that against the mosque when the mosque first opened in, in uh, Bloomfield oh, wow. Hills. Yeah, um, so so we a lot of these laws are still on the books. Um, uh, but anyway, so so we've had this incredible depopulation of the city and a de-resourcing of the city and all this investment in the suburbs. So it's like the federal government, the state government, local governments are making all these decisions about where to spend their resources. And the one place they're not spending them is in the city, which is where the resources are needed. And part of this is because of this racial legacy that predates the riot. This racial legacy is what created the riots. But it certainly became more visible to American and to white Americans, I I think maybe after 1967 and the Kerner commission was a national uh, commission that was put together by president Johnson to like, look into why 67, why there had been riots that took place all over the country. And uh, what the commission said basically was that this is, you know, it's white institutions 
It's it's white Americans who, you know, they think that this is a black problem, but in reality, it's our institutions um, that have created this crisis. Mm-hmm. And we live in a society that is unequal. <laughs> uh, it's not segregated and it's unequal and something has to be done about that. That was the verdict of the Kerner Commission, which Johnson didn't necessarily like, but – there are a lot of things Johnson didn't like. <laughs> but so so for the Muslim community, okay, the, the Muslim community, so the thing about, you know, you can't say what the Muslim response was okay. because there's so many different kinds of Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the oldest um, black mosque in the city that was not a Nation of Islam mosque was Masjid al-Mumineen, which was located in Virginia Park. Um, and that community, um, you know, uh, experienced the uprising as other African Americans around them did, right? They saw their neighborhood go up in flames. Uh, they saw their business district destroyed. Um, uh, they saw the violence of the police. And most people cowered in their homes in that period that was sort of uniformly throughout the city because there was a curfew and people feared for their lives. Um, a lot of uh, Arab Americans lost their businesses. Um, many people tell me stories about um, businesses that might have been protected by the neighbors. You know, So like one guy was going to his store, um, his father's store that the family had owned for like 30 years. And I can't remember exactly what it was, where it was located, but he got there and three of the neighbors were standing in front of the store with guns in their hands trying to protect the store right because he had he he had been a good store owner you know he had gotten along well with his neighbors other people lost everything the chaldean community which is not a muslim community or christian community but 300 of their stores were their community's uh, stores were destroyed in the riots um and then you had people like you know the most of the arab muslims in the period either lived in highland park which was relatively quiet or they lived in dearborn which was very quiet. Uh, um, and, you know, you had sort of um, uh, tanks and armored vehicles, which were sort of at the bo- all the borders of Dearborn. Uh, Orville Hubbard, who was the mayor of Dearborn at the time, who was, uh, who was sort of, he's an infamous character from Michigan history. He was known as, as in the, Hubbard Farms. Hubbard? Uh, Hubbard Farms? I don't know if it's Hubbard Farms. I'm pretty sure it's named after him. Where is Hubbard Farms? I don't even yeah, know where Hubbard it is. Hubbard Farms is in Detroit. But I think it's named after him. But don't quote me on that. But. Well, Orville Hubbard is known as the, the most infamous segregationist mayor in the North. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. And he stood on the line of Michigan Avenue with a shotgun in his hand and dared people to cross the line. That was wow. his attitude. He very intentionally – he was a thorn in the side of the federal government when they were trying to build more housing, especially more public housing during World War II when Detroit was the arsenal of democracy and they needed to house all the new people who were moving up here. He would not put public housing in his city because he thought it was a way to – infiltrate the city with African-American residents. Um, so anyway, so the, the Dearborn Arab community, some people identified with that, that white uh, supremacy narrative that Hubbard was definitely promoting and thriving right. on. Strange bedfellows, right? Yeah, and other people were adamantly, you know, um, they saw the, com- the, the connection between their community and their struggles and the struggles of the black community. And they worked with black workers like in the, um, the drum movement had its Arab parallel, the Arab Workers Caucus. I mean, a lot of these things came after 67. Um, but there was just incredible. Um, so it just depended on who you were. Right. 
Um, and again, the South Asian community was so small that we, we mm. you know, th- th- there's, you know, I know a lot of people who had come and were studying at Wayne State. And what they saw, the way they described their reaction to the uprisings of 67 was just shock and horror. They had thought America was a land mm-hmm. of riches and opportunity. And for them, it was just a wake up call to mm-hmm. the fact that that was not true for everyone. And it made them double down on their own efforts to, to complete their degrees and get their solid occupation so that they could at least um, try to avoid all the racial politics of American society. Wow. Fascinating discussion. Um, I think we could start a whole separate podcast. Yeah, I want to keep going. <laughs> I know. We're out of time. I know that I, I want to keep going on this. I could talk for hours well, on this. Well, we would love to have you on again, Professor Howell. I just, well, I'd love to come back. As you can tell, I can just talk about these yeah. things awesome. all day, we but yeah. I'm, I'm worried that we didn't get to half of your questions. We so. did. Oh, no, we, we actually did. We got to the crux of it. Well, yeah, we got, we got yeah. to three out of the five. So okay. And we kind okay. of put some together, so yeah. it worked out. But, um, no, this was really fascinating and very rich conversation, and I definitely recommend all our listeners, um, especially, you know, they have an interest in the history of Michigan and Detroit and um, Arab-American, Muslim-American history, to really um, uh, check out this book, Old Islam in Detroit by Sally Howell. Um, it's really amazing. And we have a little gift for Calvin today. We're going to be giving him a signed copy as a thank you. And for I got a signed copy with the little gold sticker on it. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, I know. Yeah, the gold sticker. But thank you so much. Um, again, just an amazing conversation. And that's kind of, I mean, I kind of see this show as kind of evolving. And, you know, it's called Unsung Heroes. And we try to bring people that, you know, just share their stories and kind of what their passions are. And we definitely were able to get a glimpse of that today. Your passion, um, this area of study that you have and that you teach. Each. And so we're really, really um, thank- thankful, and I'm really honored to be able to share your voice. Well, I thank you both for having me on the show. It was wonderful talking to you. And Can I come I'm, sit in one of your classes? This you're, fall? Welcome. I you're welcome. You're welcome to come. I love doing that. I've sat in so many classes at this point. So like my people, it's great. <laughs> you need another um, degree. I do need another degree. Me <laughs> <laughs> too. Um, I would love to. But anyway, thank you so much to all of our listeners. Check out our Facebook page. Check out um, all of our prior uh, previous episodes on iTunes, Google Play. Stitcher, and we're on iHeartRadio I now. Um, and leave a review for us um, on iTunes. And um, we're like I said, we're going to take a little bit of a break for the rest of the summer, but I really hope that you have a chance to catch up on all of our previous episodes. They've all been really amazing. Um, that's it. Thanks a lot. And join us for our next episode of Unsung Heroes coming soon. See you in the fall. Yep. <laughs> Are we out? Oh, I feel like I talked too much.